All right, welcome everyone. I'm in here a little bit early. Uh, I'm going to start uh, start this off just playing the Energy Transition Crisis um, episode one on YouTube. I've watched. I've sorry. I've listened to it and watched it. It's four and a half hours long, so not something you're probably going to do in one sit down. But I highly suggest that you take the time to Google it and listen or watch it. Uh, again, it's called the Energy Transition Crisis. All right. So we'll be joined by um, Atomic Minerals, Clive Macy, uh, and that will start in about fifteen minutes. Episode 1, The Need for Energy Transition The single greatest challenge humanity faces in the 21st century is breaking our addiction to fossil fuels and replacing them with clean energy alternatives. For several decades, we've known that fossil fuels are a finite resource that can't possibly last forever and that burning them pollutes our atmosphere. The risk of permanent and irreversible climate change has been widely discussed for over 20 years. Yet to this day, we still rely on fossil fuels for more than 85% of our energy supply. If we get this transition right, we can usher in a whole new era of human prosperity and give future generations the gift of sustainable, affordable, clean energy that will never run out. Politicians want you to believe that they already have a viable plan to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050, and that we've already made enough progress in this energy transition to begin phasing out fossil fuels. They're lying. They talk up their policies of subsidizing wind and solar energy development to appeal to your emotions, hoping you'll conclude that great strides of progress are already being made. They never mentioned that every single wind turbine ever built, combined with every single solar farm ever built, supplies less than 2% of our energy needs. The politicians never admit that achieving their stated goals by 2050 with wind and solar alone would require building 50 times as much new wind and solar in the next 25 years as we were able to build in the last 25 years. They never tell you that the electric vehicle revolution will require unprecedented increases in environmentally destructive mining operations needed to supply all the copper, lithium, nickel, cobalt, and manganese required to build all those electric vehicles. They never acknowledge how much economic inflation will be caused by the policies they falsely claim will achieve this energy transition by 2050. If the politicians have this under control, why has almost no real progress been made after two full decades of broken promises? Our politicians are paying lip service to energy transition to get your votes and stay in power. But in reality, almost no actual progress has been made toward reducing our dependence on fossil fuels. And that's not even the worst of it. I predict that well-intended but badly ill-conceived climate policy 
will directly cause a global energy crisis in the mid-2020s that could have easily been avoided with sound energy policy. I'm Eric Townsend. I was a software entrepreneur in the 90s and later went on to manage a hedge fund. I'm fully retired now, but I remain passionately committed to helping solve the greatest problem humanity faces, the global energy crisis that's certain to occur as we struggle to transition from fossil fuels to cleaner, greener sources of energy to power the global economy, while simultaneously decarbonizing our atmosphere. If you've yet to be persuaded that there's an urgent need to break our addiction to fossil fuels, I hope to persuade you. And climate change isn't the only reason. If you, like me, are already passionate about this cause, I'll show you how badly you've been misled about how big a challenge this transition will be, how long it will take, and what it will cost. Politicians are not genuinely engaged in solving this problem. They're engaged in talking about solving this problem to win your votes. But so far, their policies aren't realistic and won't achieve the stated goals in the stated timeframes. I'll show you why later in this episode. The purpose of this docu-series is to explain why this transition is needed and what it's really going to take, including the parts we don't yet have good solutions for. I'll show you the many challenges the politicians never mention, such as how much the energy transition will cost and the environmental impact of the transition itself. But put your seatbelt on, because I'm not running for office and I'm not selling anything. So I'm not going to sugarcoat the very serious problems and challenges that lie ahead of us. And if you've been evangelized by the propaganda that wind and solar alone can solve this problem by 2050, I'm going to challenge some of your beliefs with hard data that tell another story. You see, this will be a tale of failed government policies, corporate greed, bureaucracy, and corruption causing missed opportunities to cure our fossil fuels addiction decades ago. Our elected leaders have made a real mess of energy policy, so unfortunately, we're going to be in for a bumpy ride. But if we can correct our course and get this energy transition right, we have the opportunity to usher in a whole new era of human prosperity. We currently rely on fossil fuels for more than 85% of our energy needs. Nuclear supplies less than 2%, and wood and other biofuels supply almost 8%. The remaining 5% comprises all renewable energy sources combined, with wind and solar contributing less than 2% of current energy demand. That's right, after all the politicians hyped up talk, wind and solar combined only supplies a measly 2% of our total energy needs. There are two reasons that we urgently need to break our addiction to fossil fuels. The first is the risk of climate change reaching a tipping point where it becomes irreversible. This argument is extremely well known, so in the interest of time, I'm not going to bother repeating what you already know. In my opinion, the second reason is even more compelling, but it's far less widely understood. I call it peak cheap oil. The executive summary is that we've already found and developed all the oil fields where it's cheap and easy to produce crude oil. There's still plenty of oil left in Earth's crust, but from here on out, producing that oil is going to get much more expensive over time. So expensive that it will eventually cripple the economy. 
the number of years it will take to transition the global economy off fossil fuels, even if we make it our top priority, will be greater than the number of years we have left before peak cheap oil drives energy prices to economy-crippling levels. We're not running out of oil. We've already run out of new oil fields where oil is cheap and easy to produce. From here on out, more and more complex technology will be needed to produce more oil. That means prices will continue to rise until energy from oil becomes completely unaffordable, causing an energy crisis that could throw the global economy into depression and plunge the entire world into resource wars. None of these things are set to happen next month or even next year, but they will happen in far fewer years than it will take to transition the global economy off fossil fuels. And that means we've already waited far too long to avert a crisis. The importance of energy to our standard of living cannot be overstated. Societal complexity is a function of the amount of cheap and abundant energy available to the economy. This is a key lesson of this docu-series, so let me explain why it's so important. 250 years ago, almost everyone in society worked on farms because there was no alternative. We needed almost everyone's help just to grow the food we needed to survive. Not to turn a profit, just to survive. University education was extremely rare, and few professions even existed. Firewood provided the sole source of energy for heating and cooking. Plumbing hadn't even been invented yet. And in some countries, including the United States, human slavery was rationalized as necessary because there was no alternative source for the physical labor needed to run the farms and plantations of the day. What changed that allowed us to advance so much faster in the last 250 years so that we now live in air-conditioned high-rise buildings with heat and electric lighting? University education is widely available, and we can choose from literally hundreds of occupations that didn't even exist 250 years ago, and then spend our leisure time reading social media on our smartphones, or even traveling anywhere in the world in just a few hours' travel time. Most people answer by saying technology is what changed, but technology is a second-order effect, not the driving force. The reason humanity has made so much more progress in the last 250 years than it did in the 500 years before that is a marked increase in the availability of cheap and abundant energy. Technology is just how energy is harnessed and put to work to advance society. It all began with the commercialization of the steam engine in the 1760s and 70s. Since then, cheap and abundant energy, derived first from coal and then later from oil, has enabled a profound increase in the pace of human advancement. With gasoline prices reaching record highs recently, it might not feel like energy is cheap right now. But when you consider that one gallon of gasoline produces the same amount of useful work as up to 482 hours of human labor, it's still much cheaper than hiring someone to do the same work manually. If you're skeptical, try this experiment. Put just $5 worth of gasoline in your car. That won't even buy you two gallons in the United States, and even less in Europe, maybe only two or three liters. Then put your two strongest friends in the car, and drive away from your house until the tank runs dry. Then get out and push the car home. 
you will very quickly develop a whole new appreciation for how much human labor is replaced by just $5 worth of energy from gasoline, even at today's elevated prices. In case you're not inclined to actually push a car around just to prove this point, another statistic that drives this idea home is that even a professional athlete can't do as much physical labor in a single day as the electricity you could buy for less than half a dollar in most countries. We abolished human slavery, eliminated the need for almost everyone in society to work on farms, and made university education available to the masses because of the cheap and plentiful energy we get from fossil fuels. That's how important cheap and abundant energy is to our way of life. In the beginning, we didn't understand how badly we were polluting our atmosphere by burning all those fossil fuels. But now it's been decades since we figured that out, and yet we still haven't changed our ways. And we've always known that we're slowly depleting a finite resource that can't possibly last forever. Yet we never seem to take seriously the risk that it might run out someday. Less than one billion human beings lived on planet Earth when the steam engine was commercialized in the 1770s. Today that figure is over 8 billion. That population growth was directly enabled by modern farming. We literally cannot feed the current population of our planet without modern farming equipment, which requires energy that's presently supplied by oil. That's how much our way of life and our very ability to sustain the lives of everyone on our planet depends on having the energy we now derive primarily from fossil fuels. The pace of societal advancement has slowed noticeably just in my own lifetime. And the primary reason is that gasoline doesn't cost 30 cents a All right. It's going to throw my headset on here. Hey, Clive. How are you? Hey, not bad. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for joining us today. We are joined by Clive Macy, who's the director, Massey. CEO... Oh, Massey, I already made a mistake. Jesus. Uh, President, CEO, and Director of Atomic Minerals. And uh, we're going to have a great discussion today. We're going to open it up to some Q&A later on. Please DM me your questions. Um, I know we always get capital markets questions. We're gonna, I'll try to ask a lot of those along the way. Um, I started it off by playing episode one of the Energy Transition Crisis. Uh, from Eric Townsend. I really uh, suggest everybody go on YouTube and download or just watch and listen that eight-part episode um, docuseries. It's probably one of the best docuseries I've ever listened to. Extremely informative and very relevant to today. All right. So, Clive, how are you, my friend? Well, I'm very good, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I really uh, appreciate you taking the time to be interested in our company. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, uranium is is definitely getting a lot of interest um, these days. The spot price is now over a hundred and three dollars US. I think I, I saw in my Kitco app. Um, I've been following it for four and a half years now, so um, you know it's been a long go for me, but well worth it. Um, and your company, I think, got into uranium just over a year ago. Um. Just over a couple of years ago, I founded this company. Um, I had a very successful uranium company previously. And uh, when uranium was about $38, $40 a pound, 
I originally founded this company, um, you know, on the basis that I could see that the fundamentals indicated that it was going significantly higher and the demand for uranium was going to continue to to grow and the demand for nuclear power was going to uh, continue to grow as well. So I founded the company based on that. Absolutely. Um, so I, we are going to get questions today uh, about the share structure. So why don't we just cover that? What, how many shares are outstanding uh, in the company now? Uh, there's 27 million shares out. Okay. So a pretty tight float. And how much is owned by insiders? Oh, probably about 25%. 25%. All right. And if I'm... I should mention, I, I should mention, Carl, that um, we just through went through a five-for-one uh, restructuring. Okay. So um, all of the insiders had a significantly larger position prior right. to that. Okay. Um, yeah, I did see that in your news releases. There was a bunch of stock options that were granted as well to consultants. Um, okay, so do you have? Okay, well, I guess the next question I was going to ask was if I was looking at a pie chart, you know, how much uh, of this is owned by insiders? You're saying around twenty five percent. Any institutions in on the deal at this point? Um. There are a number of small institutions that have, you know, relatively small positions, but, you know, with this kind of a market cap, you don't get much, you don't get much in the way of institutional following, unfortunately, you know, they like higher, higher and larger market caps. Yeah, I mean, there's no such thing as uh, non-discretionary accounts anymore. So uh, you really do have to build a community community around your, your your company, especially when it's at this valuation, and, and grow it. Um, okay, so um, when I know there are a, a bunch of uranium funds popping up now uh, overseas and that, so access to capital is probably not that hard. Um, well, you know, as as you, I'm sure you're probably aware, um, you know, the overall broad markets have been very tough recently. And um, so that even though the uranium price is doing extremely well, and the sentiment toward uranium is extremely positive, um, you know, that the way the Dow's traded lately um, is definitely having a, uh, an impact on the capital markets. But, you know, I, I would uh, dare to say you're better off to be trying to finance a uranium project at the moment than you are a copper project. There's significantly more interest. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm actually doing a sales initiative right now for PDAC for my morning drive segments. And, you know, I, I reach out to a ton of different issuers, but, you know, overall in the mining space. And, and I, I know a lot of them wish they had uranium in their name right now because some of them are, you know, they haven't raised money in a long time. They're not drilling. They're not active anymore. They don't want to dilute their shares. So they're really just not doing anything but racking up fees to be listed. Um, so you're still in a good space. Um Okay, sticking to capital markets questions. Uh, do you know what your average cost is? Do you own shares in the company? And what percentage of the company do you own? Um, so um, I'm not quite sure what my average cost is. I've never actually, I've never actually uh, sat and worked it out. And I have roughly, you know, post-consolidation, I have roughly a million shares, I, I would say. Okay. Okay, fair enough. Um, anyone? And I think family? it was 
Sorry, Carl. I think there was a second part of your question that I may have missed there. Yeah, I was asking if you own shares, you said a million, your cost average, you haven't done that yet. Uh, if there was a third part to it, I forbid me, but I don't remember what that is okay. now. No worries. Um, yep. Um, asked you if, any, if there's any strategic investors in um, funds. Yeah, we can we can move on. And if if I've forgotten anything, friends, uh, please you know just DM me your questions because I know we get a lot of the capital market stuff. So uh, that's awesome. Uh, okay, moving on. Um, the company had a news release recently, uh, and you you definitely picked up a pretty big land package. Uh, this this could you know be this could get very technical pretty quick here, um, but I, I think it, you know it's we have to talk about it. So do you want to uh, go over the news release from February fifth? Uh, we we can. Um, that land package, to be absolutely upfront with you, is uh, not the focal point of uh, the company's exploration efforts at the present time. Um, we picked up a set a 6,500 hectare uh, land package, which happens to also include 620,000 pounds of uranium um, in a what's known as a historic resource, and. Um, it, it's a really great opportunity to increase the company's holdings and expand the company's property portfolio and uh, reduce, you know, the, the um, diversify in terms of our uh, exploration targets. Um, really, though, our efforts uh, in terms of exploration are really focused on the Colorado Plateau. And the reason for that is that historically the Colorado Plateau um, has produced 597 million pounds of uranium. It also um, produced the thickest mineable widths and the highest grades of uranium ever discovered until the time of the discovery of the Athabasca Basin. So, um, and as a result of the geology not being completely understood at the time of those uh, discoveries, um, we believe that there are a number of not just uranium deposits, but actual uranium ore belts that have been overlooked. And uh, that really is, is the focal point of all of our exploration at the moment. Okay. Um, do you want to elaborate a little bit more on sort of how this deal came together and, and why you picked it up? The Saskatchewan properties? Yeah. Or are you talking about the U.S. properties? No, the Saskatchewan one. One, sorry. Well, we had a land vendor who simply contacted us and asked if we'd like to, if we'd be interested in the projects. And, uh, you know, the projects themselves are extremely attractive. So Bleasdale Lake, for example, is the project which has the 620,000 pounds of uranium. You know, if you're a uranium company and you can get pounds in the ground, um, you know, there's a lot to be a lot to be said for that. And then, <clears throat> you know, our our Pistol Lake project is uh, entirely surrounded by Cameco. And it's literally mere meters from their Sand Lake deposit, which is 5 million pounds of uranium. So really as a, as, as a strategic play, this was a very, very interesting project 
to get our hands on. We also have, um, at the same time, we picked up the Parks Lake property, which is also um, a very interesting project because on one side of it, it's entirely surrounded by UEX. And on the other side of it, it's surrounded entirely by Cameco. And what makes both the both of these projects interesting um, from an exploration standpoint is that looking at the technical data, you can see that there are um, conductive uriniferous conductors uh, which run right across both the Cameco and the UEX properties, and they don't stop at our property a property uh, uh, the edge of our property. So. We believe very strongly that, you know, these have very high technical merit in terms of their exploration potential. Um, so it, it's um, simply, I, I would say that these literally fell into our lap and uh, we believe they're absolutely excellent projects in terms of their potential technical merit. But um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we we are already in the permitting phase um, for a number of our U.S. projects. Uh, we have recently been issued a drill permit for one of our U.S. projects. Uh, I expect we'll be drilling there sometime in the next three weeks. So that, as I say, that really is the focal point. Um, and in terms of the exploration upside, you know, I... I think that while these things we've recently picked up have very high technical merit, um, the real upside exists at the moment in our U.S. projects. Okay, uh, before we get to the U.S. project, uh, Pistol Lake, which is completely surrounded by Cameco, um, why why would they leave this landmass there without staking it themselves? I mean, you, I, you know, obviously you listen, it's a great place to find uranium. We, there's no, we don't even have to have a debate about that. Um, but what, I mean, you can't answer that for the company, but you know, it, I'm sure people are going to ask, right? Well, you know, I, all I can tell you is, um, you know, some of these projects, well, let me first say all of these projects came from the, from the same vendor. Mm-hmm. And some of these projects he's held, held, himself um, in excess of 20 years. So why Cameco um, didn't stake that ground? I suspect that the vendor held this ground before Cameco increased their land position. And I think the same, the same can be said um, of our Parks Lake property as well, is that um, you know, he held this property long before they did. So um, that, you know, I, I just can't speak to why they would not have. Now, I know that they have made offers on this on this property, okay. on these properties. Um, you know, the vendor's not interested in selling because he wants to see these projects get advanced. He's not interested in selling them to one of the majors because he's interested in seeing them advanced. And he's afraid that if they're sold to a major, they're just going to go onto a back shelf somewhere right. and, and nothing will nothing will be done with them. Right. So and I'm, I'm assuming that gentleman uh, or, the, you know, those people are now shareholders of your company. Correct. Cool. Okay. Um, unless anyone else has any, any questions right now about those properties, you can just keep DMing stuff to me and we'll, uh, we'll get them answered. Let's go on to the focus in the U.S. Uh, properties. 
So um, from a historical standpoint, as I mentioned, um, Colorado Plateau has produced 597 million pounds of uranium. About 82% of that came from the Lisbon Valley anticline, which was discovered by my business partner and one of our consultants' fathers. And he had a geological theory that these salt wash anticlines would be excellent environments for the deposition of uranium. So in the 1950s, he spent a few years prospecting in the Lisbon Valley area. And on July 6, 1952, he drilled a hole, broke off his drill bit at uh, 75 feet. And um, he had this, he was able to retrieve this material that he was really unaware of um, of what it was. And uh, he put it in the back of his Jeep. And back in those days, everybody was running around in that area with Geiger counters looking for uranium. And uh, he pulled into a gas station where they had a Geiger counter and they ran it over the material he had found. And it went right off the scale. And he realized that they had made the first um, uraninite discovery ever made in the United States, excuse me, carnotite discovery ever made in the United States. And uh, the discovery, that discovery led to Charlie Steen, who made the original discovery, um, uh, eventually putting three uranium mines into production. And um, the discovery of those three mines led to the subsequent development of three other mines. So those 17 mines together on the Lisbon Valley anticline produced 82% of all the uranium produced on the Colorado Plateau. And <clears throat> during, the, during that time, as I mentioned, they didn't entirely understand the geology of a salt wash anticline. So since then, there are a number of other salt wash anticlines that have been identified on the Colorado Plateau. And while they're ideal for the deposition of uranium, they're also ideal for the deposition of oil and gas. So through the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, every oil and gas company you can think of from ConocoPhillips, Getty Oil, Kerr-McGee, Mobile, Shell, Conoco, um, and Canna, you name it, they have drilled these anticlines for oil and in some cases discovered oil. We have a stratigrapher who works for us, um, Jeff McCleary, who's... Um, and a geologist, ex-employee of the Atomic Energy Commission. And Jeff, um, we have a database of um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these drill holes. And we've gone through all these drill holes. And while the oil and gas companies um, weren't looking for uranium, um, they did log all these holes because they wanted to know where they were in the strata in each of their holes. And so by looking at the drill hole logs, we are able to, to determine exactly where the ore bearing sandstone unit exists. All, the, all of the uranium mines that operated in Lisbon Valley produced uranium um, from the Mossback member of the Shinli sandstone found, uh, formation. So we see that in all these oil and gas drill holes. And in a number of these oil and gas drill holes, there are gamma kicks that are right off the scale, more than uh, 
700 counts per second. So all of our staking uh, has been based on based on these drill holes. So for example, at Hearts Point, um, we have three drill holes which line up like an arrow. They're separated by approximately 2.8 miles. But in this, at the same elevation in each of the drill holes, we find the Shinli, uh, the Mossback member of the Shinli. And in each of these holes, there are uriniferous gamma kicks, which are right off the scale at the same, not only at the same elevation in each hole, but also at almost the same thickness, 11 to 14 feet, depending on which hole we're talking about. So that's just one example. We also have um, at our 10-mile anticline, we have uh, approximately 520 claims, which cover both the, no the nose and the flanks of both sides of the anticline, where they're also drill holes of an that have encountered um, uh, uriniferous, very high uriniferous readings. And also at our Dolores Anticline, which is actually on the Utah-Colorado border, uh, we also have a number of drill holes there as well. Um, there's been previous production on the Dolores Anticline dating back to the 1950s. At Hearts Point, there was also some very small-scale artisan production, which took place in the 1950s. About 40,000 pounds of uranium was mined there. At that time, though, people didn't understand the geology of these, of these anticlines. So these are the things which we're focusing on. You know, the, the, the easy-to-find, low-hanging fruit in the uranium sector has been found. And, you know, these ore belts... Um, that are similar to what, what was discovered at Lisbon Valley are theoretically still there, these other salt wash anticlines. So we are presently permitting our 10-mile anticline. We're going to be drilling at our Hearts Point anticline shortly, and we're permitting our Dolores anticline. And uh, we have a number of other projects we're looking at as well in, in the uh, – on the Colorado Plateau as a result of drill hole data that, uh, that we've uh, analyzed. So is it safe to say... Sorry for that very long answer. Hey, it's okay. It, uh, that's what we want to hear. Um, so just kind of reading through the, uh, the fine print, um, does it kind of sound like you already know there's uranium in those holes? But I mean, that's a forward-looking statement, obviously, and people should be cautioned. Oh, no, absolutely. There's absolutely no, no question. We... Um, you know, these these holes, um, again, I'll just use Hearts Point as an example. We can see the gamma kicks are 11 to 12 feet thick um, in, in each of the holes. And the other thing that um, is characteristic of finding a uranium deposit is the Mossback member of the Shinli sandstone unit um, at different places on the Colorado Plateau, while it was laid down at the same period in time, it was laid down in different thicknesses. And to have a mineable deposit, you need to have a very, a very thick um, intersection of the mossback. And we have that. Um, the mossback in each of these holes is anywhere from 30 to 90 feet thick. And so in these thicknesses, suspended 
in the Mossback are these uh, very, you know, 11 to 12 foot intersections, uh, which have these very high gamma kicks. So the theory is to go in and twin, twin these holes, prove our geological theory, and move on to some of our other, other exploration targets. Yep. So I figured you were going to say twin. Um, explain what a gamma, a gamma kick is, just for people like myself that don't exactly know what well, that word is. It's um, so if you've, I'm sure we've all seen Geiger counters and so on in the movies and so on. And um, the a gamma kick or gamma rays is how they measure the radioactivity. Um, and the higher the counts per second are, um, the, the higher the grade is. While you can't make a direct correlation. But if you had, you know, for example, I'm just using an example. If you had, you know, five or six um, cycles per second, um, you know, you might find that if you went along the edge of the Colorado River with a Geiger counter. I mean, there's there's um, that's nothing to write home to mother about, so to speak. But 700 kicks per uh, counts per cycle is literally right off the scale. That is the top of the scale, 700 counts per second. So, and that's what we have in these holes. And we've also, um, the, the same sandstone unit outcrops at a cliff nearby. And um, we've looked at that. And again, the gamma kicks are right off the, right off the scale, over 700 counts per second. Okay, now is this a good place to be mining um, in the U.S.? Can you kind of tell us a little bit about that area and, and why it, you know you could probably get approved, or if not, I mean, obviously you think you can, um, and 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 why you think it's a safe place? Well, you know, it's becoming increasingly difficult everywhere to get a to get an exploration permit or a mining permit. Um, what makes this area? Um, interesting from that standpoint is that, you know, it's essentially, it's just barren, um, barren desert. And uh, we've, I have actually permitted things in the past um, in Utah. Um, I was uh, involved in the uh, Lisbon Valley copper mine, which is actually now in production and by coincidence just happens to operate in Lisbon Valley. But, you know, that in itself was a fairly complicated process. It took approximately um, 10 years from discovery to production. And I decided at that time, whatever I did, <clears throat> I wasn't going to do that again. So, you know, the fastest path to profits for any of our investors is through the sale of an asset, not down the long and painful road of production. So if we, if our exploration theory um, proves right, uh, I think we will have all kinds of mid-tier uranium companies clambering all over us. And um, previously, um, when I had Universal Uranium, we were the only uranium company that made a new discovery during that last uranium cycle. And we paid uh, a million bucks for a 51% interest in that project. And essentially the same technical people that are together today in atomic minerals made that discovery. And uh, we structured a deal to sell our 51% back to the partner 
for 150 times our original investment, which was $150 million. So unfortunately, as a result of the uh, 2008 credit crunch, the deal came unraveled and never closed. But <clears throat> that's the kind of thing that I intend on doing um, if we're successful with our exploration model here. So putting things into production and so on is, is fairly complicated. And, you know, these mid, mid-tier companies um, and senior companies have more of the bandwidth, financial bandwidth and otherwise, to do these things. You know, we're simply an exploration company. Our our mandate is to uncover these opportunities and sell them off to the highest bidder. So, in terms of getting drill permits and so on, it's it's uh, it's still reasonably easy. Uh, Grand Grand County is um, a very economically depressed uh, area, which is where Hearts Point is, and um, you know the people that live in the small communities there and so on actually embrace the opportunity to be part of a mining operation because it contributes significantly to their economic base. Okay. Uh, one of the questions I was asked was um, how much capital do you have right now and how are you going to allocate it towards the different projects? Um, well, you, um, what is our balance at this point? Uh, I'd say we've, I haven't got the financial statements in front of me, but we've got roughly about a half a million bucks in the bank uh, and how we're going to allocate capital to each project. Um, at the present time, the Hearts Point project is joint ventured uh, with Kraken Energy. So Kraken Energy will be spending the money there in relation to our other two projects. Uh, we're going through the permitting phase. Uh, there'll be some sort of, um, you know, th this business is a constant hamster wheel of spending and raising, spending and raising, raising and spending. And so we'll have to raise more capital uh, in the not too distant future. But at the moment, that capital will be allocated toward um, increasing our land holdings, I would say, and permitting our existing projects. Okay. Um, this question's for me, actually. Do you know uh, in Utah kind of what your cost uh, per meter to drill is? Um, you know, I'm sorry, Carl, you've caught me off off uh, off guard. I don't remember what it is off the top of my head, but it, I do know that the all-in costs of drilling those three holes at Hearts Point, for example are going to be about $700,000 Canadian. Um, drilling on the Colorado Plateau is uh, significantly less expensive than um, drilling, say, for example, in British Columbia. Yeah. Yeah, obviously, I don't think there's any helicopter support needed here, right? I'm just looking at it on a map. No, you can, you can drive right up to these things. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to hydro and infrastructure, is there anything available here or...? In this area, like in terms of potential potential production, yeah, like at Heart Hearts Point, or would that be part of the uh, you know, like they'd have to bring it in? There's a um, hydroelectric line that runs the entire length of of uh, Lisbon Valley, which is where the Lisbon Valley copper mine gets its power mm -hmm. from, and so Hearts Point is actually as the crow flies, 19 miles away from there. Now, what makes it interesting is that 
So there is power nearby. There's a willing and able workforce in the town of Monticello. And the other thing that makes the project very attractive, makes all of our projects very attractive, is that they are all within driving distance of the White Mesa Uranium Mill, which is owned by uh, Uranium, Uranium Energy Corp. And that mill was significantly overbuilt. And it's producing uranium at the moment um, from a couple of small operations uh, that are in the area. Um, but it's very capable of accommodating a lot more feed. So depending on which one of our projects we're talking about, Hearts Point, for example, is only about 45 kilometers away from the White Mesa Uranium Mill at Blanding. And uh, Hearts Point's about 75K and... The Dolores Anticline is about 55 to 60. Sorry, I said kilometers. It's actually miles. Um, so they're reasonably close by. So ore could certainly be trucked to the White Mesa Uranium Mill. Okay. Um, someone's asking me how you were able to get Mark Steen involved in this. Well, like any good story, they usually start in a bar. And... Uh, <laughs> I was um, busy working on the Lisbon Valley Copper Mine, and I was sitting in a bar in Moab, Utah, and um, uh, with the president, then president of Lisbon Valley uh, Copper, and Mark Steen is a, is a very well-known, recognized, um, I would say, if there is such thing as a mining celebrity, he's a mining celebrity in Utah. We were sitting in this bar, and the president of this other company said to me, oh, here comes Mark Steen. And so um, fast forward, uh, we met each other, we hit it off. Um, and a few years later, um, when uranium was uh, 11 bucks a pound, actually, um, in the last year, at the beginning of the last uranium cycle, and um, somebody came to me with a uranium project. And so I... Um, tracked Mark down and got him interested in the project. And then we then went out and staked some more claims and we built an entire uranium company around that project, which I, which I mentioned was a very successful uranium company. And so Mark and I formed a, you know, a very strong friendship and business relationship. And when I decided to um, start Atomic Minerals, I called Mark was the first guy I phoned. And I said, I'd like to start another uranium company. So uh, Mark, aside from being um, a very smart uranium geologist and having grown up essentially in a uranium mine with his dad producing uranium, he also built, Mark's father, the only privately funded uranium mill ever built in the United States. It was built by Mark's dad. And so Mark attended the Mackey School of Mines. And... Um, uh, when I said to him, well, we're going to need to find some other uranium geologists, we recruited Dick Dorman, who Dick actually worked for Atlas Minerals during the 1970s and the 1980s. Atlas was the largest operator of uranium mines at any one time in the United States. It was owned by Floyd Odlum. Floyd Odlum was nicknamed the master of the master of Wall Street and the king of cash as he took 17 thousand dollars at the height of the depression and turned it into 29 million anyway 
getting off topic. No, it's fine. And so, totally fine. I, so I got, so I was able to uh, meet Dick and bring him on board. Dick was an instrumental part of our last uranium company as well. Mark's uh, father's secretary um, produced a child called Foster Wilson, who is also a uranium geologist now and also attended the Mackey School of Mines. So Mark and Dick um, and Foster all attended um, the Mackey School of Mines together. And Foster and Mark have known each other since they were children. And through their relationships and um, previous experiences in the uh, uranium sector is how we got to meet Jeff McCleary, who has a master's degree in geology, specifically in sandstone stratigraphy, and that's who's been examining all our oil and gas holes. Okay. So um, that's how I was able to get Mark involved. Again, sorry for the long no, answer. No, that's what we're. That's why we're doing this today. Um, did Mark Steen vet? The the uh, the last news release those projects did he look at the look them over at all in the Athabasca Athabasca oh yeah bef- bef- I um <laughs> I uh, sent him the package of projects and um, I think he, after he'd had a chance to review them and so on he made a comment something along the lines of um, we need to get our hands on these as quickly as we can mm-hmm. so we did okay good. Um, so I'm just looking, I, I can see that there's other uranium executives that are listening right now. And, uh, I just want to point out that this platform is a fantastic platform to talk about why uranium is a great investment thesis overall. So you're more than welcome to join, ask questions, speak, um, and, and you know, uh, come together. It just makes it even better. But anyways, I'll, I'll, I'll continue on. Um, okay. So you've kind of, you've covered most of your projects. Um, what, t- which one tickles your fancy the most? I ask this question to everybody. Um, but which one tickles your fancy the most? What do you, which one do you wake up a little bit earlier in the morning? Cause you're thinking about it and how, you know, lucrative it can be for the, for this company. Well, <clears throat> I think the, the answer is that Garrett Ainsworth and, um, Matt Schwab were involved in the discovery of both arrow, uh, both arrow and radio in the Athabasca Basin. And um, they have told me that this is, that Hearts Point is the best exploration target. They've, one of the best exploration targets they have ever seen. And other geologists who are um, extremely familiar with uranium geology and so on have said the same thing to me. At the moment, I think our Hearts Point probably has the greatest promise. It's also the most advanced project um, that we have at the moment in relation to, you know, its actual cycle in the exploration um, in the exploration side of it. it. It's it's permitted and drill ready. Okay, so five hundred thousand ish in the bank. Obviously, going to need to raise. That's why you're public. Got some great targets, some great projects. You're you're, you're building out your land mask. Um, you've got a good advisory team. Um, I mean, I don't think anyone can challenge that at all. Um, are you going to be at PDAC? Uh, I am not going to be at PDAC. I'm more likely to be actually in Utah. Okay. Well, I'm jealous. I'm sure you. Um, tending, ten, well, tending to some company business. Yeah. Um. Let me ask you a question. If we're going to go and 
you know, transition into electric vehicles, right? It's to make the world a cleaner place, reduce our, our carbon emissions and all that stuff. That's great. Sounds great. But if 65% or more of our baseload energy is still coming from dirty sources, right? That's not actually what we're really trying to do. That's kind of a scam of this whole thing. What is the solution to get off away from that 65% of, you know, dirty baseload energy power? Well, you know, as we, as we know, the um, U.S. electrical grid is already, um, you know, at full capacity. In California, you know, when everybody turns on their air conditioners, you know, we wind up with rolling blackouts. So in my view, you know, the only logical way is through the development and construction of nuclear power plants. It's the only, it's the only real sensitive alternative. Um, it's the most cost effective. It's the most environmentally friendly. Um, the, the waste is manageable. Um, and I, I think it's the only way we can go. If you look at you know, the CO2 footprint, um, it, it also is the cleanest. And uh, wind and solar have a, a whole number of, of cost and scale issues, um, not, to men not to mention um, sp specifically with wind, there are um, environmental issues that, you know, most people don't even consider. All those things have to go from um, all those things. All of the materials um, for either solar or wind um, create a CO2 footprint on their own. So, um, so does the construction of a nuclear power plant, but it's still the least, the, the least costly, the most effective, the cleanest and the safest way to produce power. There's no, there's no question about that. I mean, for example, if you look at the stats, um, in coal last year, in the production of coal, there were 120 fatalities. In oil, there were 99 and a half fatalities. There were 71 fatalities in natural gas. And in nuclear energy, there was 0 0.01. So someone had a slip and fall? <laughs> so somebody had a slip and fall somewhere, I guess, yeah. So, um, and... You know, as as things are evolving and as the U.S. government is realizing, grasping the reality that they need to embrace nuclear power, um, you know, they're, they have come out recently and said they'd like to secure domestic supply. Um, you know, demand, there's already an 83 million pound shortfall um, between supply and demand in, in the U.S. And at the moment... Um, you know, going back to talking about the power grid, um, you know, in 2000 and 2021, we used 17.7 terawatts of power. If we're to meet Gavin Newsom's um, targets of 2050, we're going to need 70 terawatts of power. And the only place that can produce that amount of power is our nuclear power plants. There are 450 nuclear power plants that are either in the planning phase, construction phase, or permitting phase. 
worldwide at the moment. There's approximately 69 nuclear power plants have come online since 2013. So, you know, the writing's, the writing's on the wall. It's just a matter of time. Uh, what's, your, what's your thoughts on small modular reactors? Oh, I think, you know, Mitsubishi at the moment is uh, working on a reactor that will power an automobile. It's about the size of an of a uh, of a of a microwave. They're also working on one that's about the size of a fridge that would power a freighter. You know, for example, I'm, I'm not sure where you are geographically, but you know, I'm in Vancouver, and we have cruise ships coming in and out of the harbor frequently. Mm-hmm. The CO2 footprint from one of those cruise ships going to Alaska, which is most often where they're going, is equal to 16 million cars idling in traffic for a week. <laughs> So, you know, and here we are worried about the, the, the CO2 footprint from an automobile. It's it ridiculous. just doesn't make any sense, honestly. Like, I get it. You know, if it gets us, if all of this initiative, if all these initiatives get us to where we need to go faster, then I'm fine with the process at the end of the day. But we're, I feel like we're in this moment right now where people are going, scratching their heads like, well, well, how are we actually going to get there? Right. And that's kind of forcing the, you know, these debates, right? And I, again, I'm just going to have to plug this. I don't make any money off of it or anything like that. I'm not. I'm only promoting it because I just think it's fantastic. But the energy transition crisis uh, by Eric Townsend. Just go on YouTube. I was playing it at the beginning of this uh, space today. Wait, while we were waiting for Clive, I really, I highly recommend everybody go and listen to that. It's four and a half hours long. It'll probably take you you know, a week to get through it, um, you know, just because people are busy, but you got to go listen to it. He's not selling anything. He's just talking about how are we actually going to make this happen? All right. Um, so back. And let's not forget also that, you know, fossil fuels, for example, whatever anybody says, they're not going away. Fossil fuel byproducts are in the elastic of our underwear, the screen of our iPhone, the wristwatch, the strap of our wristwatch, the you know um, fan belt in our cars, there it's everywhere. It's not going away. And uh, you know, for, for example, speaking of oil and gas, if you look at um, the amount of CO two that's produced in pun- in tons uh, over a, over the life cycle of a power plant in oil. It's 720 tons. In coal, it's 820 tons. And in nuclear, it's three tons of CO2. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's an enormous, enormous uh, upside to, to using nuclear power. I just can't stress that enough. Yeah. So I got a couple of questions here, the exact same talking about when, you know, where can people reach out if they want to go into a financing? I don't think you have anything announced, but, um, you know, uh, I guess, reach out to the company directly? Yeah, any, anybody that wants to participate um, in a financing or is interested in a, in a future financing, they can contact me directly. Um, you know, I'm, my, my, um, I'm easily, uh, you know, one can contact me by phoning the office and, uh, and, and call, or calling me directly. Um, I'm, I'm a fellow who always answers my phone. So, okay. Awesome. Um, anything we haven't touched on today that you, you want to circle back and, and, and highlight? 
I think we, I, I think we have uh, covered most of it, Carl. I, um, you know, we've, we've, we've got a nice, uh, tightly held share structure. Um, we've got an, uh, uh, what I believe is a very seasoned um, and experienced technical team. Uh, we've got a blossoming uranium market, and I think it's going to continue to strengthen for a whole host of reasons. Um, we've covered our, our projects and, uh, why we think they have excellent technical merit. Um, I think we've, I think we've pretty much, uh, covered it and I appreciate your time. Yeah. I'm glad this was your first, uh, X live experience. Um, I'm sure that I, I really encourage people to, to, you know, to like and follow the atomic atomic minerals, um, handle, because uh, obviously they're going to be posting your news releases there and, and company updates, I'm sure. So follow them there. Um, uh, let me just see if there's... Yeah, and I just to add to what you're saying, Carl, um, you know, anybody who's interested from an investment standpoint, we will have an ongoing flow of news. Uh, we should have drilling and, and results in the not-too-distant future from... Hearts Point will have further permitting and acquisitions on the Colorado Plateau, and uh, we'll also be implementing some permitting and um, and and groundwork at our Athabasca projects as well. So um, there'll be a there'll be a nice ongoing flow of news looking forward over the next three or four months. Yeah, that's fantastic. And what's the timeline if you if you if you can't get one, that's fine. But on twinning those holes to confirm uranium, even though I know you guys believe you have it. Um, the, the drilling process um, is is very fast um, with that uh, sandstone strata. So within within a week, uh, for example, um, you know you could you could drill and have the results from a hole. Okay. Awesome. Well. Clive, thank you very much. Thank you kindly for coming on today. It's been a fantastic, how long have we been? 45 minutes or so. I think people have a clear um, picture now as to you know why you got these projects, a little bit of your background, um, you know, and, and, and hopefully gain some new interest in, into the company. And, um, you know, you're always welcome to do more X spaces down the road as you, uh, you know, build things out, get results and attack new things please come back and uh, it's been a great experience. Well, thanks very much uh, for having me, Carl. I really appreciate it. It's been very enjoyable talking to you and uh, really appreciate taking the, every, really appreciate everybody taking the time to, uh, to listen. Thank yeah. You. Thanks for all the questions. Uh, that's, you know, what, what makes this thing so great. Uh, it's been a decent, decent amount of listeners, listeners in here today. And um, yeah, again, follow the atomic minerals, X handle uh, to follow their journey. Thank you.